This is Chris David, and you are listening to the Fulham Focus podcast. Hello, welcome to the Fulham Focus podcast. My name's Matt Wachler, and with 13 games to go, we go to Selhurst Park on Sunday lunchtime looking to get some more points on our quest for survival against a somewhat inconsistent Crystal Palace side. I've got Morgan Carlton and Ben Robinson with me to look ahead to the game. Plus, Danny joins me for an in-focus chat about Roy Hodgson. So let's go. Fulham. Right, lads. Well, the government roadmap back to normality is pencilled in May the 17th for supporters to return to stadiums which could prove massive if Fulham and Newcastle are to battle it out on a final day showdown on May the 23rd for survival at Craven Cottage. Nothing's set in stone, but once again, the thought of being able to return to normality and go back to the cottage is a lovely thought, isn't it? Morgs, us supporters could end up influencing the season after all. I think if we're given the chance, it's going to be amazing. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a dead rubber because we would have been, uh, we'll be four points clear by that point. But if they, it comes down to that last game and we're allowed five, you know, even up to 10,000 fans in the ground, it will make a huge difference to the players. And I think, you know, even when there are 2,000 in there for the Liverpool game, I think you're still sort of having someone, you know, having a group of fans behind the players really did help. Whether, I think it has to go to a vote or something to allow the fans in. I imagine Newcastle will be voting against any proposition to allow fans back in just for one game because obviously if they're going to allow fans in they want to have them at St James's Park they're not going to allow them at, uh, don't want them at an away game so we'll see if it happens if it does I think it'll be brilliant um, and uh, hopefully you know this just means that come the start of next season yeah maybe we won't have full stadiums just yet but we will be on the road to uh, you know inverted oh, commas back to normality why not apparently Reading and Leeds festivals are going ahead at the end of August so why not yeah, you're not exactly socially distanced, those are you either? <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. That's right. Um, what do you think, Ben? I mean, <clears throat> Fulham supporters. Well, there could be a possibility or a scenario where Newcastle fans are allowed in as well. I, I just don't know at the moment quite how it's going to look, but it's a nice thought, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's about I'm a bit cynical. Um, I've got to ask: Is there really any point? I mean, for one game, I mean, we all want to go back. Obviously, I say I want to go back. I haven't been for a while. Um, I'm at the other end of the country, but you know, for for one game, it could go the wrong way, and it could. These players have got used to playing without anyone there watching them. They're used to playing their way, and the plays are pass wrong. It doesn't matter. But now we put a pass wrong in front of five thousand Fulham fans who know we need to win, and um, I know some of the Fulham fans, and uh, they're a bit. Uh, I don't know how to put Pitchy. it. I don't want to offend anyone, but we're a bit of a fickle bunch. Um, and it could just be an added distraction. You know, on the day players are coming out and they're looking to think, oh, the fans are in. Before you know it, there's something else to think about. Um, I mean, but it, I mean, it could go the right way. Like you said, it could go well. And um, as long as there's no Geordies there. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were, Geordies won't be allowed into London, though, surely. Just, I don't know. Yeah, they should never be allowed into London. Uh, <laughs> don't know. It's, it's, um, it's you're quite a, bit, a way You're, off, you're yeah. closer to Newcastle than you are in London, mate. <laughs> it's like... It's yeah. a month. <laughs> Gotta be careful what I say, they'll come get me. It's a month before apparently the country's gonna be up and running again as per normal without any social distancing rules anyway. So, you know, we'll have to see where we are uh, at that point in time. But it's like I just wanted to wanted to hear your thoughts on it because I think it's a it's a nice thought and it's positive, especially, you know, seeing as we spent so long cooped up. Um, we had just that one game where we could go back against Liverpool, and the supporters did make a difference against Liverpool, even though there were only two thousand of us in in the ground. It it did make a difference, and I think we definitely lifted our game, and the um, the, the players responded to it for sure. Um, let, let's move on then. Our podcast a few days ago spoke about the possibility of Crystal Palace being dragged into this relegation dogfight, but they somehow managed to nick the points at Brighton on Monday night against you know completely against the run of play. Um, that leaves us three points behind Newcastle and four points behind Brighton and then six points behind Burnley. So these are the teams we're in range with uh, as of now. Here are the games this weekend. So I want to get your predictions from both of you. First of all, it's West Brom versus Brighton. Ben, how do you see that going? Um, Well, I mean, I think it's if West Brom lose that game, they are down. 
Um, I can't see any way they can stay up if they don't win that. But I just don't think they're good enough. Um, I don't think Brighton are good enough to win it either. So I think a draw and probably the best result for us as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I'd quite like to see West Brom win that. I don't think West Brom are an immediate threat to us at the moment with the way that we're playing. So anything that keeps Brighton within range would be great. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go 1-0 West Brom. What do you reckon, Morse? I was going to go the same. I think Brighton are going to be a little bit demoralised after that uh, smash and grab loss, hmm. as it were. You just look at the stats. <laughs> that they, Even though they lost, they had like 75% possession, 25 shots and goal, and they still managed to lose. Um that's going to take a bit of a uh, you know pounding on the confidence, I think. So West Brom, they've I think I don't know huge about them, about them, but I think they've looked a little bit better in the last few games. And I think Allardyce is really going to drum home. This is you know last last chance saloon for them. So I think they might get it, get the win. All right, so that's that one then. Then it's Newcastle against Wolves, which is at eight pm on Saturday evening. How do you see that going, Morgs? Well, Wolves have looked pretty terrible up until the last couple of weeks. Um, I think, I think the win against Arsenal invigorated them a bit, and I think Newcastle missing Callum Wilson is a big loss to them. But I think it's going to be a draw. I'm going to go one all in that one. I agree with you. I see that being a draw as well. How about for you, Ben? Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be a draw though as well. To be fair. All right, and then the last one is just after our game on Sunday at 2pm. It's Spurs versus Burnley. Ben? Um, Spurs is just about Pippen, I think. They've been pretty poor recently, but if they don't beat Burnley, come on. Come on. Fingers crossed, Spurs win. And for you, Morgs? Yeah, I think Spurs, are they are dodgy. Uh, they have just played in Europe to, well, tonight, for when you're listening. Um, but I, th- I think I think they'll uh, win. I think it'll be a low scoring. I think it'll be a, a one nil. I think they'll just snatch it. Yep, I agree with you there as well. I think I think Spurs will beat Burnley. So that wouldn't be too bad. I mean, we're, we're never going to sit here and predict the worst case scenario results for us at the moment, are we? So I think those, uh, those uh, results... don't, don't put it beyond us. I mean, we've done it before. <laughs> well, yeah, true, but. I... I'd like to think that those results will come in. We'll we go for a West Brom win, a draw at Newcastle and a Spurs win as well. Um, and then we'll come on, to, uh, come on to our game in a little while and we'll predict that one. Um, since the turn of the year, Palace have won four games out of nine. They've lost at home to West Ham and Burnley, but now they're on 32 points following that smash and grab win at Brighton on Monday night. That's probably them safe now, isn't it? Even though they didn't have Wilfred Zahar the other night. Yeah, I mean, they... They will get the odd result here and there. I think they're just about far enough away in order to not have to be overly concerned with going down. I don't think they'll finish, you know, anything outside of the top, uh, outside of the bottom five or six max. They did it last season as well. They had a fairly decent start. Um, as soon as uh, we came back after lockdown, they pretty much lost every game, I think. So, yeah, they're, they're playing pretty badly at the moment. Without Zahar, they're sort of, you know, missing their creative force. That easy guy, he's, you know, he's obviously decent, but he's still young. He can't carry a team uh, in the same way. Uh, but we've just got to make sure that we carry on with our game plan. Uh, Brighton, just obviously the same difficulties that we have in putting the ball in the back of the net. But hopefully uh, it's one of those games that we can actually get a couple and make sure that we don't concede. I was having a look at the uh, their results this year because... We were talking about it, weren't we, the other day on WhatsApp, all of us, and kind of saying, well, Palace are a bit crap, aren't they? They've, I don't know how they've got so many points, but looking at their form this year, I mean, they've done all right. They've they had a couple of defeats at home. They they lost at home to Burnley in their last home game, which was really bad, uh, that 3-0 uh, result. And they've they've lost at home to West Ham, but otherwise they've they've lost at, um, lost at Man City. They've drawn at Arsenal. They won at Newcastle recently and lost at Leeds. So I don't I, I don't think they're as bad as maybe we we thought they were. And I, I think just because they had that defeat at home to Burnley recently, maybe we're as supporters we're under underestimating them. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I, mean, I think they're like I said in the Burnley preview. Um, when was that last week? Yeah, it was last week, wasn't it? Yeah, the Burnley preview. Um, they just seem to be able to win. Uh, the, just, just every year they just win a few games. You don't expect them to, and they just stumble over to forty points. And 
they're not in danger of going down and they're not in danger of you know, um, wearing sort of the mid table. Um, like you said, they've won four of the last nine games, which, you know, I mean, we could only, we've only won four season. Like that, that's not relegation form. So, I mean, I think they're, they're fine and safe. And once the heart comes back, they can get even better. I think it's their problem is just inconsistency, isn't it? Really? Other yeah, than that. So. Yeah, I mean, before Hodgson came two seasons ago and they lost the first eight. Yeah. Um, and like you said, last season they started off well and they lost almost every game for lockdown. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know what it is. They might just get to 40 points and be happy. They've got quite an old team, though, haven't they? I mean, they're not they're not a bunch of youngsters. They've got, you know, a fairly ageing squad. So that's not going to sort of help them from a, you know, uh, longevity point of view through the season. So if you've got uh, old legs, as you know, back in the days when we were, uh, Yole was managing us, that was one of our biggest downfalls was the fact that we had very little youth and very little energy in the team. Experience is great for certain matches, but when you're getting to the sort of, you know, as they call it, the business end of the season, it's, you know, the legs get a lot more tired. The recovery time takes longer. And um, especially with this sort of amount of games that we've had in a small space of time recently, a lot of those players are going to be feeling it. So I think you, you can't underestimate them because it's a Hodgson team and we know how Hodgson teams play. But at the same time, it is one of these games as that, you know, where we are in the league, we can't be taken for granted. And you know for a fact that we won't be. So it's very much a case of going in there, sticking to our game plan, getting the job done, get out onto the next one. It's an interesting time at the moment for Crystal Palace. As you said, they've got an ageing squad and Roy Hodgson is out of contract at the end of the season, as Sonia said the other day. So it's it's almost a case of somebody's going to have to come in and rebuild that team. I, I don't expect it to be Roy. I expect Roy will be off at the end of the season and then someone else will come in and try and rebuild that squad. But then where did Crystal Palace go after that? So it was an important win for them on Monday night in that sense because that takes them... Very, very close to survival, I think. I was, I was saying the other day, I think 35 points does it this season and they've got 13 games now to maybe get three or four points, just to be sure. Um, but once once they're there, then perhaps it's time to, to look forward for them and have a look and see who's going to take them on to the next step. And you've got the likes of Eddie Howe, who's out of work at the moment, who has got to be one of the favourites as well. Yeah, big time. I think yeah, I mean, that, would be a, that would be the perfect job for him, you'd imagine. I mean, it's a decent, it's a decent club. And, you know, the, the team, yes, it will it won't be gutted, but there are certainly a few players that will be leaving there in the summer. But I think it's definitely a, it's a project club. It's not a, you know, it's not a definite go down. It's not a definite get into Europe. It's one of those that you could do something with. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely amazed that they've kept Wilfred Zaha for so long. Um, so he went from Man United, it was terrible at Man United, and he went back to, did he go back to Palace? Or did you, yeah, yeah, he went back he to did. Palace, yeah. And he sort of found his form again. I'm amazed no one's coming and taking him. Um, he's basically been keeping him up on his own for the last two or three years now. Um, well, he, and, he almost like he almost say, went he almost went to Everton, didn't he, at the start of last season? I think somehow that didn't go ahead. I think I think he was ready to go as well, wasn't he? Because I don't know if he refused to play, but he was out of the side and his head had been turned. But then they brought him back into the team, and fair play, they they kept on kept hold of him. You wonder what it is yeah, that's it, keeping him there. Apart from, I mean. You don't. It doesn't sound like it's a loyalty thing, given the fact that he, you know, went on a bit of a mini strike. So you kind of wonder why he's still there, or maybe sort of, you know, potential uh, clubs are going. Actually, no, that's a pretty bad attitude that we don't need. But who knows? If, if, thankfully, he's not playing on Saturday because he's one of those players that will change a game on his own. Uh, we, there are some players in that team that we do have to be careful of, but you know, that is the uh, that is the the main guy that we just you know, have to, you know, take that opportunity, given that he's not playing. Is he definitely not playing? Do we know that? No, he's out for a, a couple more weeks, at least, I think. Is he? Fabulous. Saying, saying that, he'll probably be on the, on the bench or something like that. But mm. well, Last time we came up, we were talking about Zahar being a danger man, first game of the season, and didn't Jeffrey Schluck score against us? Yeah, so. uh, he did, he did. But <laughs> yeah. Zaha scored as well. <laughs> oh, well. Nah, but well, to be fair, pistol over my stats, you, it? you or me or uh, or Frenchie probably could have scored as well against that team. So that's not really too much into it. <laughs> you leave, you leave Fabry alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 
There'll be more of this after the Roy Hodgson player in focus chat that I had with Danny recently. Fulham. Right, it's that time again. We've got another in focus chat about a Fulham legend connected to this weekend's opponents. This time it is Roy Hodgson. I've got Danny with me. How are you doing, Danny? Hello, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. We were uh, we were supposed to do one of these for the Everton game and uh, I had Baldo on with me to do a Simon Davis chat and um, he completely balls it up with his microphone so it didn't end up going out. So this is the first one of these we've done in a long time. I'm looking forward to it. A good one to get started with again as well. Not like Baldo to mess it up, is it? <laughs> no, quite. All right, let's, let's get on with this one then. So Roy Hodgson, so coming off the back of such a bad experience with Laurie Sanchez, I remember being completely underwhelmed when Roy Hodgson was summoned to the Fulham hot seat in 2007, tasked with turning our fortunes around. The club was sat in the bottom three with just two wins all season. And we turned to a man who hadn't worked in the Premier League for 10 years. What were your thoughts when he joined? Underwhelmed, I think would have to be the word to sum up his appointment at the time. Um, I was too young to remember his first spell in the Premier League with Blackburn. And he'd spent so many years abroad... And and to be fair to him, I think overseas, he was appreciated wherever he went. I think he's quite popular in Scandinavia and with the national teams that he coached. But uh, And he obviously got into Milan to a, a UEFA Cup final. So he had pedigree. It just wasn't a household name, if you like. Uh, and I didn't really see how it was going to change anything. It felt like we were going like for like from a Laurie Sanchez to a, another Laurie Sanchez, if I'm being honest. And obviously... <laughs> with hindsight now, it just shows you that you just never know how an appointment and how a manager is going to fit with a club. Every club is different. As you said, he'd had a lot of experience um, in Scandinavia at international level. And I, th- I think he was even linked with the England job before he came to Fulham. But that didn't really whet my appetite for his appointment at all. I just... I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know who I was expecting. I can't really remember at the time. But as I said, Sanchez was such a a bad apple for this club in the end. And we just needed somebody to come and lift us out of it. And I was looking for looking for some inspiration as to why we weren't going to go down that season. And at the time, Roy Hodgson wasn't it for me. But how wrong you can be. It took just over a month for him to get his first win with that game against Aston Villa. But he had begun to strengthen the side by bringing in the likes of Breda Hangeland, Eric Neveland, Leon Andreasen, Paul Stalteri. And he'd also been quite lucky, uh, or fortunate, let's say, to be boosted by the returns from long-term injury of Jimmy Bullard and Brian McBride. And that win against Aston Villa, I don't know, it, it felt like it was never going to come. But there had been gradual signs of improvement over the weeks leading up to that game, hadn't there? Yeah, they had. And, and the Villa game was his sixth game in charge and he'd lost three of the first five and drawn away to Bolton and then away to Birmingham and you could argue that they're very similar to us drawing with Brighton and West Brom recently because they were the teams in and amongst the relegation fight typical Hodgson to go on the road and get a point really wasn't it so it was a steady start and the defeats apart from losing 3-0 to Arsenal we narrowly lost to Chelsea we narrowly lost at uh, Upton Park against West Ham and slowly we were starting to be in the game more. It just it needed that spark, I think, in order to transition that foundation of being hard to beat into having match winners. And signing the likes of Eric Neverland, who wasn't a starter during his time at Fulham, but had a, a knack of coming on and scoring a, a winning goal. That He never scored consolation goals, did he? If he was going to come on and score, it was going to be an important one. And then you had the likes of Brian McBride and Jimmy Bullard coming back from injury. And of course, Bullard's the one that made a difference for that Villa game. So I feel his signings, as well as the the timing of McBride and Bullard coming back, played a big part in him being able to turn it around. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I don't think it would have rescued Laurie Sanchez had those two players come back because I just I don't think he was a good enough manager that there's something in Roy Hodgson that you began to see as time went on where you thought, hang on a minute, maybe this could be on. But after that Aston Villa game, we did lose the next three games away at Middlesbrough, at home to West Ham and then at home to Manchester United. 
And it was very nearly four in a row at Blackburn as well until Jimmy Bullard once again buried a last-minute equaliser from a free kick. I think it was that Sunderland match at the Cottage where I really felt we'd had it, though. And, you know, we lost 3-1 to them. And for me, I didn't see any way back. Did you after that game? When you mentioned that to me earlier about the Sunderland game, I had to refresh my brain and look up the order of the results. And, and that game came just before the great escape. That was the sixth uh, last game of the season. For me, it was the game before that when we drew 2-2 away to Derby not winning a must-win game against a team that's completely dead and buried. Uh, and that, for me, sucked all the life out of me. If we can't beat these, who are we going to beat? And, and we did take a quite fortunate lead in that game through a, a deflection. I think it, Dean Leacock scored an own goal, lobbing it over his keeper. But then they went straight down the other end and, and equalised. And for me, I was gone at that point because we was four points away from Birmingham. But Birmingham's goal difference was so much better than ours that it was effectively a five-point gap. We drew and Birmingham won. So we come away from it six points, effectively seven behind with six games to go. And I thought, well, that's it. We're done now. Uh, and that was a long journey home, that one. So, yes, for me, it was a, a week before you. I think in a way, just thinking about this, the the way that we've kind of gone down the two times we've gone down from the Premier League previously, it's kind of been so emphatic and we've always been in that bottom three, haven't we? And I just, I wouldn't want to be in the position where with five or six games to go, we were six, seven, eight points clear and then to end up going down. I think that would be far worse to go down in that situation. What do you reckon? Well, I think... At that stage, I'm talking about where the Derby-Sunderland games we were referring to where we thought we were dead and buried, they were 14th. Even when we beat them with five games to go to spark the great escape when Netherlands scores an injury time, I still didn't think, oh, we're going to catch Reading now. The gap was massive. And I agree with you. I think it would be a lot harder to take if we was in a position where we threw it away. I think that's always worse. Well, we've mentioned the great escape a couple of times and it's impossible to discuss Roy Hodgson, particularly in the context of Fulham, without mentioning the great escape. Reading away, Man City away, Birmingham at home, then Portsmouth away. Four wins in our last five games, which unbeknownst to us at the time was the beginning of something incredible for the next few years. You could never have believed what was to come, Kajar. It it did seem impossible. To go from completely finished to surviving... And then your record finish of seventh. I mean, getting into Europe, what a dream. You you could never have imagined it when we were kids that you'd ever see Fulham in Europe, let alone go into a Europa League final. And even now thinking about it, it it seems so far off nowadays for for that to ever happen to us again. Genius, really, Roy Hodgson. How did we go from that to a European final in two years? Absolutely incredible. Just, I know we've talked about this a lot over this season in various chats, but that Man City game where you get that kind of reaction from the likes of Paul Merson, those moments in football are few and far between where you get a moment that dramatic. Obviously, the Etihad Stadium has had that moment in a, in a far more poignant way that will be talked about for many more years with the Aguero moment when Man City won the title for the first time. Um, But that's what's brilliant about football. That's what's brilliant about sport. Moments like that and to be involved on the positive side of a moment like that is something that, you know, obviously means a lot to you and I and to all Fulham supporters because we're that was 13 years ago nearly and we're still talking about it and it still brings goosebumps up. You're right. Those moments are so few and far between in football in general. And I think most neutrals could appreciate what a great escape it was. But... In the, the course of our history as a club, I would say it's up there with the Mickey Adams promotion, that Man City comeback, for how significant it turned out to be for the future of where we ended up. Without that Man City comeback, without Roy Hodgson, it would never have happened. So it's arguably the most important game in Fulham's history. Yeah, very much, very much so. Um, well, the summer after that, we signed Mark Schwarzer, Andy Johnson, Bobby Zamora, Zoltan Gira and Dixon Atuhu, plus John Pantzel, to name but a few. We went into that 
08-09 season full of excitement that whatever happened, it had to be better overall than the previous season. And of course, we went on to finish seventh, our highest ever league finish, which meant that we qualified for the Europa League. I tell you, Mike, the first thing that springs to mind when I think of that season is Hull away on the on the opening day of the season when we we took the lead. I think Sulky Hume scored a header, and then Hull scored two late goals, and then we got the mauled by the Tigers thing from their supporters. And I remember I was there with a couple of mates, and we just we left when they got the winner. We just said, right, let's go and get on with this and get out of here and get get this journey started on the way home. We came out the ground, we turned the wrong way and ended up walking over this bridge right over by the home fans, realising that we had no clue where we were. So we had to go back the way that we'd come, by which time the ground was emptying out. We're in our Fulham kits, like our, our Fulham shirts. It's, you know, it's August, so it's warm. We've got, got short sleeves on. So we're easily identifiable as Fulham supporters. And all these Hull fans are walking to, walking towards us, going, hey, idiots, gone the wrong way, have we? Long way home, lads. Go on, piss off, all that sort of stuff. As we're walking back across the bridge as well, my mate is called Tom Seaman. He's probably listening. Hi, Tom. And um, he had Sea Monster written across the back of his shirt. <laughs> we're walking across this bridge and this group of Hull fans are just going, see, 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 monster. And we couldn't say anything because we were so outnumbered. It was ridiculous. Evening, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my experience of Hull way is not quite as eventful as that. All I remember is going into the, the new season uh, filled with optimism that it couldn't have been as bad as, as last time. Uh, and then to go and lose to newly promoted Hull the, on, on the way back, just thinking, oh, here we go again. Obviously, it didn't turn out to be that way, but pro- probably the worst time you could ever play a promoted team. What was to follow just completely erased whole from my memory, if I'm being honest, because it was such a great season. And I think when you look at the list of names that you've listed there that Hodgson brought in, he was such a good manager, knew what he was doing. And it's probably why... Uh, a lot of fans are really keen for a manager to have a big input in, in the players they bring in because they know what they want. When you look at it, it's Schwarzer, Hangeland, Murphy, or Murphy was already here, but Atuhu, Zamora, Gira. It's the spine of the team. He made the spine of the team so strong. You know, he was, he was very shrewd in the market, Roy Hodgson. And, and, and another thing about him was that they were all quite experienced players. We didn't go for players that had potential. They was all season pros, and it, like they all hit their prime, their peak all at once. It was just a, it was a one-off, wasn't it? That setup. It was a one-off, but once you've been in the Premier League for seven or eight years and you're established, then you can start to sign players like this because there's there's less risk for players to join you and have to worry about relegation. And we already we we did have the the nucleus of a very good side after that second half of the the Great Escape season, which obviously would have been completely dismantled had we gone down, but we were fortunate enough to stay up. And then we were able to attract these types of players. And these are the types of players now that we'd struggle to attract because we tend to be one-season wonders at the moment, don't we? Uh, It's hard to argue with that. I think that's completely fair. And, And until we do establish ourselves as a Premier League side... Like you said, but it'll be a long time before those times do come back. Well, then, of course, we had the 2009-2010 season, which we do talk about a lot because of our European achievements. But we also still managed a 12th place finish in the league, which is incredible, given all those extra games that we had that season. And, and this is probably the key to Roy Hodgson. I think he was uh, very good at managing his squad, getting the best out of the numbers he has. And you think of the likes of... Jonathan Green and, and players like that, Eric Neverland, that that were never um, established themselves as first team players. But when they did have to come in and do a job, they knew exactly what their job was. Uh, you never you never saw Roy, Roy Hodgson play um, a Damian Duff as a striker and a Zamora on the wing, did you? Everybody knew their roles, and it was just very kept very simple, so that the players that were coming in knew their roles as well. Everyone had a purpose in the team. We were just very good at going away to places and, and grinding out those nil-nil draws and, and, and play, things like that, just to keep us ticking over. Uh, and I, I don't remember... Uh, people, people often say that clubs, the, the bigger clubs come back from European games and then the next game they always struggle. I don't remember that ever being the case for us. We obviously come back from Basel and then battered Man United. 
3 0. And I, I, th- I think we did come back from a European game and then go and draw 0 0 at Anfield. Um, we just never seemed to be phased by it. it just, we relished the opportunity of the extra games rather than seeing it as a burden. And I think that mentality saw us through to the end. Yeah, it, that, it was an incredible mentality that was that was drilled in from Roy Hodgson. And I don't know, it's it's I, I can't think of anything negative to say about him at all because everything that he touched turned to something exciting. And by exciting, I mean the end product of the results. The games weren't always that exciting. The performances weren't always that exciting. But everybody in that in that team knew their role. We were extremely well drilled. And you knew what to expect with the Fulham team. Teams, you know, knew that if, if they were if they were coming to Craven Cottage or we were going to them, they knew what type of game they were going to get. We were going to make it very difficult. And chances are we might nick a winner as well. So, you know, it's very different times, but great times. I absolutely loved it. So let's come on to your highlight of Roy Hodgson's time at Fulham. How do you sum that up? So much was achieved in such a short space of time. And they was just... From one extreme to the other, I mean, you can't really compare the feeling of the Europa League journey to the feeling of surviving. Um, They're just completely different emotions. But I think the emotion when Roy Hodgson scored, the adrenaline, the release... I don't remember his goal. When did he score? (laughs) Sorry, did I say I've got Roy Hodgson on the brain here? Yeah, you know (laughs) what I mean. When Danny Murphy scored at Portsmouth. Uh, and I was right. right Hodgson with the header <laughs> in, his, in his suit. Good old Roy. See, that's where that's where Parker's going wrong. You should get Roy up front. Um, <laughs> good old Roy. No, um, so when Murphy scores that goal at Portsmouth, I'll never forget the the emotion was just incredible. It was so overwhelming, uh, and and I don't think anything will ever compare to that for me. Um, obviously, beating Juventus and and the Hamburg semi-final, even just the occasion of being at the final was just surreal. It really was. The whole the whole day was just incredible. But from my point of view, the emotion involved in surviving on that final day when I didn't expect us to would have to be number one. Did you find the emotion of the European run almost being that of disbelief? I can't believe we've we've done it. We've picked off another team. I can't believe it. We're, we're in the quarterfinals. My God, we're in the semifinals. My God, we're in the final. It's like, I can't get my head around this. This is absolutely crazy. Well, uh, the weird thing for me about um, that Europa running was that we seemed to do it back to front. We had the two hardest opponents in the last 32 and the last 16. Obviously, Shakhtar were the holders and Juventus were the favourites to go and win it. Because then... We knew that we had Wolfsburg in the quarterfinal. And if we got through that, I think we would have had Anderlecht or, or Standard Liège, someone like that, or Hamburg. And that, on paper, just seemed a lot more straightforward. And so once we'd got past Juventus and I saw the draw, how it unfolded, part of me had an eye on getting to the final, if I'm being honest. But you, you still, you, you're in disbelief every time we, we get through a game. Uh, and, and we're on to the next one, on to the next round. We're one step closer. It was just one of those campaigns that just every week just seems to be a joy to turn up. And, and every week seems to get even more unreal. Bizarre. Bizarre. Yeah, that great escape was amazing. Don't get me wrong. And the, the way that we came back from the dead was incredible. But in terms of once in a lifetime achievements and moments for me it's got to be that Hamburg semi-final stand up if you still believe and then somehow you know getting getting ourselves from a goal behind ahead and then just going on and and getting the job done and getting to the final it was just incredible and the I don't think I've ever felt excitement like that just getting my head around the fact that Fulham had got to a European Cup final was just amazing and as a as a Fulham supporter I'd never thought I'd see the day where I'd be able to say that I've seen my team play in a European Cup final incredible so for me it's that Hamburg uh, semi-final as my favourite moment of Roy Hodgson and even when Gira scored Hodgson leapt up didn't he and I think he forgot that he was a man in his 60s he just leapt up like a kid and punched the air it's just fantastic 
that was a long, long 15 minutes for me because you know if they had broken our hearts, we would regret that forever. We would never have got that opportunity again. So the the margins were a lot finer, I think, for the Europa League. So yeah, I don't don't knock you for picking Hamburg. I could have easily picked that. All right, let's move on then. Who would you say was his best signing for Fulham? He signed so many good players that all played their part. But I think if you was going to pick out a player that was pivotal to the way we played and what we achieved under Hodgson, I think it does become a, a straight battle between Breda Hangeland and Bobby Zamora. And I could easily pick either of them. Uh, obviously, Breda Hangeland's more lovable, uh, I think, uh, as a Fulham supporter. We had a stronger connection with him. But... I think it would be harsh on Zamora to say he wasn't just as important. Let me, I think... let me put it to you like this then. So for me, Breda Hangeland came in and looked very quickly like a complete centre-half, transformed the way that we defended and just solidified things, looked excellent straight away. Bobby Zamora was more of a risk. He'd been at West Ham, been at Tottenham, hadn't really ripped up any trees. But Roy Hodgson made Bobby Zamora into a better player and got the best out of him. Yeah, but that hasn't really helped my decision because you've just reminded me that Hangelin was, you know, a, a big part of the great escape and, and and Zamora came later on. So based on that fact, I think I would have to say Hangelin just because he helped us get to the stage of being able to bring in Zamora. But that's nothing against Zamora because I think he's a very, very close call. They were both outstanding signings. The other thing with Hangeland as well was that I'd never even heard of him. I'm sure many Fulham supporters had never even heard of him before we brought him in. But he played for Roy Hodgson previously. So he was kind of brought to England and brought to Fulham by Roy Hodgson and unveiled as this outstanding player. Whereas everybody already knew what Bobby Zamora was about from seeing him play in the Premier League. For, for years before. So I think in terms of a surprise signing, if you like, and surprise impact, it has to be Hangeland. But I'm with you. I think it's very difficult to, to split those two up in terms of the impact that they brought to the club. When you look at the signings Hodgson brought in for the Great Escape season in that first January, the likes of Andreas and Neverland, Hangeland, they were signings that I would imagine came to Fulham based on Hodgson's reputation from overseas. Yeah. Which is ironic because it was Rog. Uh, it was which <laughs> Rogson, <laughs> which is ironic because it was Hodgson's lack of reputation in England that made us underwhelmed as fans when he was appointed. Yeah. So it, it's funny how it, it all turned out in the end. But um, thank God he knew what he was doing. Yeah, just goes to show that we don't always know best as supporters. Rarely know best, probably. Anyway, of course, Liverpool came calling for Roy's services after the Europa final and we replaced him with Mark Hughes. How did you feel when he left? Did you feel like he went with your blessing or did you just feel really disappointed that he'd he left us or a bit of both? I don't really remember how I felt when Hodgson left, to be honest. I think I was still recovering from the, the Europa League because it took a lot out of you. All the, the build-up and, and the hype around it and just it was such a, a dream to be there and then to have it taken away from you in in that fashion it, it was draining I don't know if I really cared that Hodgson was going I don't think I really paid much attention to it at the time with hindsight I think it's probably a good thing that he did go because there's only one way down from that we would have of course been in a better position to establish ourselves but if we're being honest we we finished eighth under Hughes. We finished ninth under Yale. I think we finished twelfth the following season. You know, we were still an established Premier League club for a couple of years after that. Although the decline was in motion and we were going one way, we were going to go one way anyway. I think for Hodgson's legacy at the club, it was probably the right time for him to move on on a higher and so that we look back at the good times and, and see him as, as a great manager. If, if he had stayed in a couple of years later, we had sacked him because he wasn't doing very well. I just think it would have overshadowed a little bit what he'd achieved. Because that kind of happened with Tigana when he was sacked. It took away a little bit at the time from what a special era it had been. So it was obviously sad because I felt like he was your Uncle Roy, wasn't he? He was our manager. 
But um, I think he deserved the opportunity. How many times yeah. does a Liverpool or someone like that come around? He had to. He had to go. He had to take it. At his stage of life, it might never have come along again. And he had to go and see how it could, how it could work out for him. And um, unfortunately for him... It just didn't quite work out for him in in quite the same way because I think he's a, he's the sort of manager that can come in with a, a smaller club, let's say, and lift them to a level. But if it came to managing one of the real elite sides of the Premier League, then he wasn't the man to take them on to the next level. Did an okay job there, but he was never going to you know take them onto the the level where you know the likes of Brendan Rodgers. Brendan Rodgson. <laughs> I'm doing it now. The likes of Brendan Rodgers and Jurgen Klopp have done since. But he went with my blessing um, with a heavy heart, but he, I guess he had to take it. Would you say that he is Fulham's greatest ever manager? Uh, I mean, I think there's very few names that you could throw into the hat for that debate. Uh, you, obviously, Alex Stock got us to the 1975 FA Cup final and, and obviously did it as underdogs because we was in the second tier. So that's a great achievement. But what Mickey Adams did completely transformed the future of the club out of nowhere. To younger fans listening, it might seem a bit irrelevant talking about a, a promotion from the bottom tier. How can that be the same? But it, it's importance to what was to come. What was just, it should never be underestimated. Then you have the likes of Malcolm McDonald and Tagana that, come with a style of play that evolved us into a team that we never thought we could be. You know, the football we played was just probably years ahead of its time on both occasions. And then you've got the likes of Roy Hodgson that maybe he didn't play the most entertaining football, but he achieved so much in such a small period of time. And he's probably the only manager that you couldn't find a fault with. And I think some managers just a perfect fit for a club. And when you think of the personality of Roy Hodgson, his mannerisms, just everything about him. Yeah, I think there's two things here. There's the greatest manager of all time and your favourite manager of all time. My favourite manager of all time will always be Mickey Adams. But the greatest manager, you know, you have to look at the achievements and you can't look beyond Roy Hodgson, the highest league position ever, the European final getting us out of the shit in the Great Escape season has to be the greatest for me. Um, with that in mind, Danny, rate his Fulham career out of 10. 10. And I don't think I need to say anything else. We've summarised his whole time at the club already. I think it would be out of order not to give him anything but a 10. Yeah, completely agree. Couldn't be anything less than a 10. And you can't go from saying he's the greatest manager of all time to saying, yeah, six out of 10. So, yeah, uh, 10 out of 10 for me for, for Roy Hodgson too. Lovely stuff, mate. All right, thank you for that. Let's pass back to the main show. Fulham. Right then, lads. So it's on to Crystal Palace stats. Morgs, what have you got for us? So I've got Crystal Palace's stats for this season. Um, and so far, they've come out with an average of 1.3 points per game uh, in the first 25 games compared to their 1.1 over the whole of last season last year, which obviously was brought down by their form post-lockdown. And uh, this season, they've scored an average of 1.2 goals per game and conceded zero uh, compared to 0.8 last year. Uh, but they've also conceded 1.7 per game compared to 1.3 last year. And uh, last season, they did keep a clean sheet in 26% of their games. And so far this season, it's only been 16%. And remarkably, so far, this is Palace's best points tally in the Premier League since they got promoted back in 2013. And they're currently two points better off than at this stage last season and six points better off from the season where they've lost the first seven without scoring. And they have won four of their first... 12 home games a season and they lost five so you've drawn three and as we've already pointed out their form is quite irregular up to this point they got the win against Brighton on Monday but they lost the two before that and uh, before winning the two before that and two before that and you can see where I'm going with this they've only kept four clean sheets all season um, but three of those have come at home games 64% of goals they've scored at home have come in the first half 
with a small majority of them coming within the first 15 minutes of a game. And obviously, given our uh, history, yeah, not so much recently, but uh, this season of conceding goals in the first 10 minutes, we've got to be slightly wary of that. Um, when they've got behind the game, they've only managed to score an equaliser three times out of 14. And, uh, looking at the record of uh, Fulham against Palace at Selhurst Park, it's win-loss, win-loss, dot, dot, dot. So, obviously, law of averages means that we are going to win this. And we have won out of 22 games at Selhurst Park, just the six. And I'm guessing, if I'm right, the last time was the 4-1 win when Kasami scored his goal. All right, mate, thanks for that. And Ben, over to you. Okay, so I've got some player stats here. Starting off with the only player who's played every single game for Palace this season. It's a, I'm not going to get this right, but I doubt he's listening, so I doubt he'll care. Vin, I can't say it. Vicente Guita in goal. Um, he's currently eighth for saves made this season with 77. Um, lagging behind our Lord and Saviour, Ariola in seventh with 82 saves. Uh, we just spoke about Zaha, and obviously he's... Um, Palace this season scored 30 goals, and he's been involved in 11 of them. So it's a big threat out for this game. Um, I mean, He's currently unclear whether we fit enough, but I think we just yeah, discussed there he will be out, which is good for us. So looking at other attacking options in the absence of Zaha, they've got Christian Benteke, who scored that 95th minute volley against Brighton the other night to seal the smashing grab. Yeah, that's the right phrase, I think. Yeah. Um, and so he's sort of reminiscing on his glory days at Aston Villa um, before he lost his form at that dirty Liverpool club. Um, look at the other options. They've got Jean-Philippe Mateta, who scored that, Audacious back heel on his debut. He looks to be quite a good sign and fits quite nicely into that sort of typical uh, Crystal Palace mould up front. Uh, skipping to the midfield, they've got Eze, the ex-QPR starlet, who we hope to keep quiet. Um, it'd be awful if he scores a winner against us. And you've got Mitro's mate in midfield, Milivojevic, the New Year's Eve party rebels. Um, <laughs> he's he's going to be lining up in central midfield. Um He's averaging 1.7 tackles a game and one and a half clearances. He's, he's one of the standout players for Serbia in that sort of central midfield role and he's sort of a, one of their midfield stalwart this season. Going to the defence, they've got quite a, an old defence. Um, they've got 35-year-old Gary Cahill, 34-year-old Scott Dan. None of them are young, fit and able like ours. But it's the experience and that's probably why they're in the position they're in because every year they know how to win. Um, they've only had one defender this season to make 20 appearances, and that's Chiku Kyote since this season. And at fullback, they've got Nathaniel Klein and Joel Ward, who've played out the same amount of games at right back. And the same for the left backs with Tarek Mitchell and Patrick Van Arnholt. All right, let's yeah. come on to our lineup then. Uh, Morgs, you see any changes for this one? Yeah, I, th- I don't know. I think if um, Mitro's fit again, then we might see him play up front instead of Madger. I don't know really at the moment. It's. It depends how badly his COVID was. Uh, COVID was, so you know it might be one of those games where he brings him in and then Magic comes off the bench, or we may just stick to what we, uh, we were doing uh, last week. But I think um, Cav did all right on the right wing. I think you know he probably deserves his place for this game. Um, in terms of the back four, absolutely fine. I think you know Robinson we've uh, talked about before is is one big letdown is his crossing. But I think in terms of how he holds uh, the left-back spot, I think, you know, he's he's useful to have. And I think his speed could be particularly useful in this game. And Aina, you know, he's he's played well um, of late. So I can't really see Tete getting his place back. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would stick with Zambo and Reed at the back. You know, as I call it, uh, the Reed, <clears throat> Anderson and Tosin. It's kind of the golden triangle there, which is... You know that's not going to change if Reed stays fit now for the rest of the season. That's going to be the uh, you know the formation, pretty much. I think, and then you may see Zambo and um, Lamina interchange a bit more, but uh, nothing. You know, there was nothing that stood out that made me think we want to change anything from uh, to this week. All right, Ben. Um, any any changes you'd make? Personally, I wouldn't. Um, I think the only change you could think about making would be Ayin as a left back and bringing in Tete. Um, but I mean, Robinson's done nothing wrong. Um, there was talks about Lookman moving in the rest, but I mean, he's had that week off now, so hopefully he can. So he's not going to be sort of burnt out anymore. And Mitro, I mean, 
I don't know. It's a funny one. It depends if he's fit enough, like Morgan said. I mean, if he, he could be absolutely knackered. I mean, I had COVID. I was knackered walking upstairs. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, mean I wasn't a professional you're, you're athlete. You're a Sunday before. league athlete as well, aren't you? Box to box centre back. Then, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'd keep it as it was. Um, we're, we're on a roll. Keep it going. Why not? Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Let's come on to finally then a score prediction from you both. From you first, Ben, what do you think? We're going to get the points? Yeah, why not? Uh, 2 1 Fulham. Lovely. I think realistically it's going to be a draw. So I'm going to say 2 all. How about you, Morgs? I'm going to go with a plucky 1 0. Again. Let's, let's keep it nice. Keep it nice and boring. Snatch the mm. snatch the goal and then uh, just thwart, uh, play. Let's play Hodgson at his own game. We've just got this horrible run of three games coming up afterwards, haven't we? Spurs yeah. at home, then um, Liverpool away, Man City at home. Where again, you're looking at those three games, thinking how if we get if we got two points out of those three games, it would be amazing. Um, but yeah, we, the we thing really is, you've got to be... imagine in those three games that Newcastle are going to pick up at least one point. To stretch yeah. it, so we need we need this. This goes under that must win banner again, just because of those yeah. next three games. Yeah. So then you get you get those three games out of the way, and all right, we've still got to go to Arsenal, we've still got to go to Chelsea, and we've got got to go to United, but not in a not in a block of of games. You know, they're kind of spread out across the last few games. So oh, I don't know. I just, I just want to get the wins as quickly as possible. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, and the, and you've, you've, you've waited we, this long, we, so... Hmm. We said similar to this in October, was it? When we had Leicester, Liverpool... Yeah. Um, uh, and we had that block with Spurs Man, and Chelsea where... Yeah. We should have got something out of Chelsea and at home. And, you know, we, we seem to be OK against the good teams. Um, I, I think all these games are winnable. The only game that isn't winnable is Man City because they're so good at the moment. And I think all the other games, you know, you look at the teams and they go, oh, they're doing all right. But there are still, they're still dropping points. So who's to say that us in our form, yes, we're not winning every game, but we're not losing every game. So who's to say that we can't at least get a few points here and there? I mean, Liverpool away, you've got to assume you're going to lose. But let's face it, they've been crap. So, you know, who knows? They might, you know, still be playing badly. So yeah, I mean, it's a different, very different feelings t- t- two years ago. I mean, two years ago, we were looking at games against top six and thought, well, write that off. No chance there. Although we had no chance against anyone two seasons ago. Yeah, um, that is true. Based on the results the, we had. But... The, the difference between now and earlier in the season when we were getting, all right, we got that win against Leicester, but we were picking up a few draws here and there, is that draws aren't really good enough anymore. We need to be, we need wins. We really need to be winning games. So this, as you say, more Sunday is must win. And then we can we we don't we won't take our foot off the gas at all in in the next three games. But they're not as important if we don't, if, you know, if we don't win on Sunday. But if um, if if we fail to win on Sunday, then we're going to have to we're going to have to really get some points in in those three games when we're up against it. So I don't know. The, 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 the one the one good thing now is that there aren't any midweek games left. I don't know if there are. Top them next week. Okay, yeah, it's okay, Thursday. So they, they they slid that one in. Um, oh yeah, of course because, the FA Cup and stuff, didn't they? Yeah, League Cup. Yeah, they've um, so we got to play them sooner than we would have done. But yeah, Ignore them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. But anyway, all right. Well, thanks, Les, for joining me for this one. Thanks again to Danny for the Roy Hodgson chat, and thanks, of course, to you all for listening at home. We're back on Monday morning to look back at the game. I believe I will have Matt Dom and Baldo with me for that one. So enjoy the rest of your week and speak to you then. Cheers. Fulham.